Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, I can't lie, I get excited when the summer comes to an end because slowly but surely we trickle back together. Just getting to hear uh, the family of God sing out to God and His goodness, and it's a it's a joy. Man. So, like in the in the sparse times over the summer, man, I was so glad that you were here. Man, it's good to have uh, more of us back. I look forward to even more of that as we uh, keep going. So, we're in uh, the book of Romans. If you've been with us, we're exegetically going through just verse by verse the entire way through. We find ourselves in Romans uh, chapter fourteen this morning, verses one through. Uh, 12. So I'm going to go ahead uh, and read that, and then we will jump in. Uh, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Uh, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both over the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So to each one of us, given a, or so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would be with us. We pray in this section uh, of the book that you got our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that we would see the beauty of what we are uh, called into and what we get to walk in. Lord, I pray that our ears would be open uh, and that you would speak to your people. Uh, we pray that in your name be glorified today. Amen. And so quickly, what we've been trying to do is keep the book of Romans in front of us. We don't want to lose our gauge of where we are at. So chapters 1 through 11 explained the gospel to us. All of those chapters were just to explain the gospel from every angle possible, but to show us that we are justified in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. So all of salvation hinges on Christ's finished work. It's all Jesus. He does it all. Every good blessing that we get is only in him. Therefore, as theologians kind of say, we are simultaneously in this interesting spot where we're still sinful, but yet completely righteous. We can be works in progress. We can still be, uh, have some rough edges, but be perfect in the eyes of God, because when God looks at us, he sees the beauty of what his son has done. This is the reason why the gospel is actually good news, uh, because you can breathe and be in process. You can have a rough day. You can uh, slip up. You can, uh, you, you can kind of not do so well in a certain area and not worry that God hates you or he's about to reject you or throw you out of his family because of it. He instead, even when we slip up, he invites us into closer and closer fellowship with him through Jesus by the Spirit. You are safe. You are free. You are never going to be disowned. And the Father says, even on your bad days, hey, come closer. 
Come walk near uh, to me. You have room to be imperfect here. Now, none of that is supposed to make it where we fall into license and go, hey, nothing matters. God's going to love us. So just like go out there and have fun. YOLO. That's, that's not what this does. It's just meant to help you uh, so you don't buckle under the weight of your own humanity because you and I are not perfect. And we feel our imperfectness uh, quite often. Then in chapter 12, Paul begins to, after the whole gospel has been laid before us, uh, Paul begins to describe what the gospel creates in a life of a follower of Jesus. The, the good news that we are accepted by the work of another, by Jesus, instead of our own resume, it does something. And he says it's going to create a grateful joy in your life. Oh man, that, that another has accomplished all the things that I could not do. And then it's also going to give this over-the-top love that is demonstrated in your life and in your relationships and in your conduct. And Paul started kind of walking through the spheres that this actual love is going to show itself because he, he means it when he says, hey, we're supposed to be a people of love. He says, hey, we're going to love God through being living sacrifices. We lay our life down. We're not conformed to the ways of the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We love the church, the, the body locally by using our gifts. By serving, by setting up speakers, there's workers downstairs taking care of kids. We love the church by serving it, using whatever gifts we have of our time, treasure, and talent, and then not thinking too uh, much of ourselves, but humbly going like, hey, this place doesn't rise and fall just about me. It's all about Jesus, and I walk with my gifts with my brothers and sisters. We love one another by hating evil and holding to what is good. We love even, and this was one of the hard ones, our enemies. We do not lash out in hatred like the world around us. And we'll love our community by submitting to the government authorities. That was a couple weeks ago. In any area that's not leading us to sin, we are good citizens by submitting to their authority because we know, hey, God put them in charge. Whether they're good or bad, God put them there. And then Paul summed that up with the text that we looked at last week where he steps back and he says, okay, all the laws, all the commands, all of this, are really summed up in understanding that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, which wasn't some politically correct nicety that didn't actually mean something. Truly, love is at the heart of all that the Father does, so it's at the heart of the commands. And we need to hear that. When there's commands and there's things and we're called to repent and called to believe, you're like, ah, he's calling you towards love, not, not calling you to steal your joy. And because of this, again, our relationships will be transformed when we are freely given love, and then we love back the people and the world and the community around us. So now in chapter 14, Paul is going to move into uh, a specific way how this love is going to be demonstrated in a hard situation that applies to the real world. Something that pops up all the time. It popped up in Paul's day, and it popped up in our day. If we look in the book of uh, Corinthians, we see this issue pop up. Now he's covering it in Romans, and it happens all over the place. The issue that we see in the text is the issue of judging fellow believers over non-essential matters. Like judging the person to the right and left in your missional community at the church, ju uh, judging the people around you over things that don't matter that much. Or in basic terms, fighting each other over your opinions. This is what he's talking about. So he opens up the text, and he says, okay, uh, in verse 1, there's one who's weak in the faith. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So there's a, a scenario unfolding in the text right at the very beginning. And in this scenario, there's a, a weak in faith believer and a strong in faith believer, both of them believers. 
Both of them loved by God and a call to not stay away from each other even though they're at different spots and a call also not to fight over their opinions. And then we see the, the matter of opinion that Paul is talking about at the beginning of the text. There's two in the text, but at the beginning, the thing that he's telling them not to fight about is whether they consume meat or not. The weaker person in faith eats only vegetables and they abstain from meat, insert a million vegan jokes, while the person who's stronger in faith believes meat is fine for them to eat. The issue on the table is the issue of Christian liberty. Hey, what can we do and what can we not? What's off limits and, and, and what's not? What, what, what does grace allow us to walk into and, and what should we not do? Meat is the specific idea here, but the general topic is the, the liberty that we walk in as believers. Like, hey, what's okay and what's not? What's at stake is, is kind of understanding how to navigate things in the world around you. What is permissible and what is sin? What is wrong and what dishonors the Lord and disobeys him? And what's absolutely fine? Does, does he not care about now, in language that is common to Christian circles, we pivot for a second, you're going to hear this quite often. Many would call a brother who, or sister who repeatedly falls into some sort of sin pattern uh, a weak believer. Uh, they would say, hey, the, the idea is, well, they're too weak to overcome their temptation, and in their weakness, they can't white-knuckle themselves to morality, so in their weakness, they, they cannot resist evil and sin in the world, and so they just kind of keep falling all the time. So uh, the, the guy who drinks too much, a uh, weak brother, the person who, who gives themselves to desire, weak brother or, or, or sister, we can quickly kind of give the de facto name to a person who falls into repeated patterns of sin. Oh, they're my weak brother. They're my, they're my weak sister, as if their faith is not strong enough to keep them out of trouble. But we need to understand in this text is, is Paul wouldn't call the on-repeat uh, habitual sinner a weak faith believer. He'd call them a sinner. He'd say, hey, man, you're, you're not actually living out of your faith at all, and he called them to repent. He called them to not play games with their life. Now, there's room in the early church and in our church to fall short, to stumble, to struggle, to be imperfect. There's margin for that. There's room for that. There's never room to disregard all the rules and say, hey, I'm going to do what I want, Grace. It's fine. So the, though the modern context would call someone who over and over and over does the same thing, kind of willingly, though they call that person a weak Christian, Paul in this text, he calls the overly cautious believer the weak Christian. You find the difference? The guy who always sins, we might call the weak believer. Paul's calling the person who's always trying not to sin, like overly cautious. He calls them the weak one. Now the first example, again, is not the person who is sinning all the time. It's the person who cannot eat meat. This person is the weak one. The wording is the one who believes that they cannot do something, the one who thinks that something is wrong, that the Bible never actually says is wrong. Their, their conscience is making them not do something because they worry that God is going to get angry. God is going to look down on them. He's going to be disappointed. He's going to be frustrated. He's going to take away one of their golden stars in, in heaven if they do something that they have deemed on their own unfavorable that God never actually said it was unfavorable. This is the weak believer, always trying to make sure that God doesn't crush them. And the understanding is it's not maybe just their physical ability to resist that's weak. It's their understanding of how the gospel works. That is where the weakness comes. So if we backtrack a little bit, the counterintuitive nature of the gospel is that all is grace. 
We are not accepted by God through the do's and don'ts that we're able to navigate well and live by. When we die, we don't simply hope, right, that our good deeds outweigh our bad, though this is the prevailing thought in much of culture. Hey, when it's, when it's over, I'm, just, I'm not Hitler, and I didn't do as much as bad as my neighbor, so I'm probably good. No, 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 the, the, the hope isn't us in us balancing the scales. The hope is in the work of Jesus, in Jesus' perfection, in Jesus' obedience, in Jesus' submission, and, and that's it. The weak person that Paul mentions believes in Jesus, loves God greatly. They're, however, always trying to kind of like tip the scales. They believe in, in the words of some that, that, that to be okay, it's Jesus plus, I got to do this, or Jesus plus that rule, or Jesus plus not doing this other thing. They're always trying to hedge their bets, tip the scales, make sure that they have the favor of God by doing extra and over and beyond things. So they tiptoe around life and God, trying not to get in trouble, or they double down on obeying superfluous laws that they made up that God never actually told them to do. Because they believe, hey man, if I, if I raise this as a standard of what you need to do and I live in it, like God's gonna have to notice that I did that. And surely, like I mean, surely he's gonna be extra proud and, and give me extra grace and extra mercy. The beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to do that though. That, that's where our joy comes from. We should retrain after the summer. That's a good spot for amen. We don't have to constantly be worried about God dropping the hammer on us, about God crushing us. We don't have to make up extra ways to make sure that he's happy with us. He's happy in us because of Jesus and our faith is in his son, Jesus. You cannot be more loved than you are now. He cannot be, uh, he, he cannot be more overwhelmed in love with you by you making up extra rules to set yourself apart and follow them. Again, we have to always balance. Friends, there are rules, but there's freedom too. Christ came to set us free. Now, what does the text force us to acknowledge? It forces us to acknowledge two destructive uh, distortions of Christianity, two major disruptors of our sanctification, of our joy, of our love of one another, which are antinomianism, which you can just call license, and legalism. They're the opposite side of the same coin. To be uh, an antinomian, you abuse Christian freedom by willfully sinning, right? So your, your belief is, hey, grace has got me. It's covered. I have so much margin. Like, it's fine. God can't love me any more than he does, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. They take Christian freedom, and they run 18 miles too far with it. No, that's not freedom. That's license, Legalism on the other side, they bind Christian freedom, the freedom that we should walk in because grace is given us. And what, li- or what legalism does is it begins to demand others do the same. It creates rules that aren't in the Bible. The Bible does not speak about these things or doesn't tell you anything specifically that you have to do. And it raises these, these things up of minor matters to the test of spiritual maturity. So a person will be like, hey man, this thing, it kind of is what establishes if you're varsity or not. So you should probably do it. Well, does it say that in the Bible? No, no, no. But I mean, if you really, I mean, like if you, if you really want to be accepted, you should probably do it. This is what legalism does. It raises things up that God never does, and it demands other people to follow them with you. And Paul wants to avoid both pitfalls. We should not run to license. Hey, nothing matters. Do what you want. We also understand that our good father has set us free. We don't have to put laws and weights and heavy things on top of us that he has never demanded. 
Now, in this scenario, Paul mentions the weaker brother is not a legalist, and I would say like in parentheses, yet. They just feel like me to something that they can't personally do, okay? So they're, they're not demanding that everyone else not eat meat. It doesn't say that in the text. They're not demanding that everyone agree with them. Their conscience has just confined them in an area that it doesn't need to. But for some reason, they feel like, man, I, I just, it would be dishonoring. Uh, back in that day, a lot of meat was pork, so some of them were holding to Old Testament law. A lot of meat was, set, was uh, given to idols and sacrifice. So like, hey, man, like, it's kind of guilty by association. I don't know if I should do that. So they were free to do it, but for some reason, they just they, they felt like they couldn't. And abstaining is fine because they're not actually doing anything wrong. So in the text, Paul's directive is to the stronger brother first, the meat eater. The one who's like, I love bacon to the glory of God, and I'm going to eat it. The one who's walking in the liberty that they have been given. He says, welcome the weaker brother, but not to fight with them or quarrel with them over opinions. He's saying this as clearly as can be. And friends, in the last three to five years, we have to hear this. Stop unwelcoming people over your opinion. Don't make people feel as if they don't have a place with you because they don't agree with you on something that God never talked about. Don't do it. It's heartbreaking how often we see fellowship, friendship, and community abandoned over opinions, over preferences. Again, this is over non-essential issues. We make non-essentials essential. In the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, united by the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't see ourselves dividing over our opinions. It shouldn't happen. There should be room at our tables, in our homes, in our lives, in our hearts for people who don't see everything the exact way that we do. For people who disagree over non-essential matters, fellowship shouldn't get broken over your pet peeve or your preference. Whether you're the weaker brother or the stronger brother. Saying, hey, stop dividing. Why would you make this air of tension where they can't share the table with you over something God never tells you to actually care about. What, what, what are you doing? He's brought you together as family. Stop, stop dividing. The directive necessitates some clarification and some cleanup work, though, because some who fall into that license category, remember the ones that take Christian liberty uh, way too far, they're going to hear this, and they're going to go, see, let people do what they want. Let them live how they want. Let them follow what they want. Let them chase what they want. And no matter what anyone does, Refuse to, to, to cut them off. Let them do whatever. and Don't ever refuse to, to gather or associate or, or anything. Don't ever make them feel bad. Don't ever call them to repent. Just whatever someone does. This is what Paul's saying. Hey, don't, don't unwelcome them. Well, that, that's not what Paul says. We have to remember this is only about matters of opinion or things that people esteem, things that people value that the Bible is, is not speaking into and the Bible doesn't mention. So things in our context that people love to fight about, that the Bible is silent about, would be like the homeschool versus public school debate. Right? It, it falls into this category. The Bible doesn't mention it. Does it give uh, certain ideas that the, the family should be the head of the discipler of the child and all this? Absolutely. But it, it, it doesn't say thou shalt not go to public school or thou shalt go to homeschool. Matters of politics that we wage war against each other, most of those things actually aren't in the Bible. There, there, there's no red and blue, Right? Worship style, liturgical format, topical versus exegetical preaching, it's not in there. You're saying, hey, just understand what is mentioned and not mentioned in the Bible. 
And Paul is not saying keep quiet over, ignore, and look over issues of sin in the body. He's saying don't divide over issues of opinion in the body. There's clear scriptures that actually call fellow believers to address sin issues, and we need, we need to get towards this. In a healthy body, members of the body will call each other to repent. Like that, that, that dreaded idea of, of church discipline from elders, that should be a last case scenario because other people who love other people have called them to repent. Brother, sister, I'm not an elder, but I love you. Please, please, please come out of this. This is a regular part of scripture, calling people out of sin to address sin, bringing a brother or sister to repentance so they can walk in the freedom of Jesus. And if they stop, welcoming them in. But if they refuse, there's biblical mandates all over. Well, hey man, you actually should not welcome them then. But again, Paul's talking about opinion here, not commands in the Bible. The second directive that Paul gives, the first, stop dividing over opinions. The second Paul gives is a stronger brother is not to quarrel with the weaker brother. You ever had a conversation with someone? Hey, brother, can we meet for coffee? Yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. Then you get back in the car afterwards, like, I literally think the only reason they wanted to see me is to argue. There's no high, there's no like, pleasantry. They just wanted to tell me their opinion and why I was wrong. Paul says, hey man, in this welcoming, don't welcome someone just to make them believe what you do over your opinion. Welcome them no matter which side of the opinion that they fall on. If they want to eat meat, eat meat. If they don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat, but don't welcome someone into your home. Hey brother, I just felt like I needed to welcome you and like, sure you don't want that bacon? No, no, welcome them, love them, care for them. And let God continue to work things out for them. One of the things that we need to hear is God is sovereign so you don't have to control issues of your opinion. And neither do I. Paul then issues a warning to both sides of the scenario in the text saying, do not despise the brother who abstains from meat. The stronger brother who eats meat in his freedom, like does something that the Bible doesn't say is wrong and is enjoying it, can tend to look down at the weaker brother who feels like they can't do it and call them a legalist or a fundy or immature or an idiot. He said, hey man, don't fall into that. Don't die on that mountain. Do not hate your brother. Do not despise your brother because their conscience binds them over something that your conscience doesn't bind you. You're free, keep doing it, you're fine, but love your brother even if they see the issue differently. Do not begin to look down, hate. We just have some like bitter, man, I love them, but they're just really dumb about that thing. He's going, hey man, don't do that. And conversely, to the one who abstains, do not judge the one who eats. So the person who feels constrained, hey, I shouldn't be eating meat, you can begin to take that personal issue of conscience and be like, and why are they eating it? What's wrong with them? He goes, hey, don't do that. It's, it's fine in issues of opinion. It's fine for you to, to go ahead and, and abstain, but do not begin to designate your brothers as unacceptable before God because they're not following you in suit over your opinion. He's saying don't turn into a legalist over your personal conviction over your opinion. And again, remember I said before that the, the, the brother who's not eating meat is not a legalist yet. If they're just abstaining at that point, they're just following their conscience, all is good. 
But again, if they begin to demand others do it and they use it as a litmus test for who's really a Christian and who's not, they've taken their opinion and elevated it to a command of God and they've gone way too far. Again, the words are despise and judge. Do not let a a wedge form in your heart because someone doesn't view an opinion the way that you do. Do not begin to think of someone as ungodly or licentious or worldly or messed up because they don't see an opinion the way that you do and they're not called to abstain. We make some things really weird. The Bible is actually pretty clear on what you can and can't do. So it says over the issues that, that it doesn't speak into, just be careful what you do with each other. Then we see a stronger warning to the legalist. He says, who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Remember, that's when you look at someone and be like, they're not acceptable to God, they're not saved. You begin to judge their salvation because they don't view an opinion issue the way that you do. And Paul says, who do you think you are? His point is that believers are servants of the Lord God. We are his creation. We are his blood-bought children, his possession. If God has called someone clean because of their faith in Jesus, who are you to sit there and judge them as dirty? Call them unacceptable. The master, God, will see them through even if they're not following your opinion. The caution here is do not judge someone as not saved based upon them violating your preference or your opinion ever. Let God be God and submit to his commands over us to the best of our ability. Call each other to repent over what the Bible calls sin. Be really careful how you step in other areas. He says something interesting as well in the text. Hey, why would you not welcome someone that God has welcomed? Like if there's an opinion issue that's caused tension between you and a brother to where you're like, hey man, like we used to be cool, but we're just not as cool as anymore. Like I just kind of like don't agree over this issue. So what in the world would make you not have dinner, not be in relationship with someone that, that God's in relationship with? You are brothers in Christ. Be united. And Paul shifts to another example uh, of those who esteem, uh, and this is again a, a matter of opinion, one day is better than another. So this is probably talking, it's, it's actually not super clear, but it's, it's either talking about those who think the Sabbath is on a different day than, than what is recognized, or those who practice some of the Old Testament feasts and rituals uh, that, that they're not really held to anymore. Uh, notice the first example of meat, eating meat is, is over personal behavior and conviction. That's, do you personally think something is wrong? This second example about the days is about preferences over worship or faith practices, right? So the first one is things that you do in the world. The second one is how we should do church. We love to fight about all of them. He says, be careful over the matters of opinion there. The idea is a certain pe- person feels convicted to worship in a way that is not wrong, but also is not something that the Bible specifically mandates that they must do. Paul says for this scenario, we'll let each person do whatever they're convinced in their own mind to do, which is let them be free to determine by their conscience these matters of opinion. And his, his words as well is like, hey man, if, if you're kind of leaning towards something and you think it's necessary for you, like, hey, you need to be convinced. Like, don't be flighty over it. Like, if, you, if you're going to go, go all the way in matters of worship. If you feel called to it, just go for it. So a person needs to worship on a given day, let them. And a person feels like they need to not eat a certain food, then go ahead and let them. He says this, just make sure you're doing these things through this lens. Honoring the Lord, 
And those things that you're implementing through your opinion should be generating things. Do you want to know if you're in the right or the wrong of a personal idea or a personal thing of, of conscience that you're living through? Paul will go, well, just ask this question. Does you living that way cause you to honor God? Okay, good. Does you living that way generate thanks and worship and, and, and celebration in your heart towards God? Yes. Then you should probably do it, he says. Again, let our convictions be about honor and thanks. If you have a conviction that honestly is just a thing in your mind that you do because you know somebody will look at you a certain way if you do it, if you have a conviction that you only do in certain spheres, right? You know how like you go out with a church friend, you're like, hey, we should probably pray for a meal. Like I haven't done that in three months, but we're the church person, so I should pray here. Eh. If, if you're doing something because you think you're winning extra points from God, he says, hey, man, you should probably back up and reevaluate that conviction because that's probably a misunderstanding about God or it's an issue of pride that needs to be laid down. Make sure your convictions are leading toward the honor of God and thankfulness towards God. But if that conviction does do that, if it stirs gratitude and honor, then you should go for it. You have the freedom in matters of that. If we back up, Paul wants believers, both weak and strong to worry about honoring God more than criticizing each other. That each other is like the people around you. If we worried about honoring God and giving thanks to God and seeing the gifts of God given to us and the mercy of God and the love of God, if we worried more about those things than criticizing, condemning, and hurting the people around us over opinions, we'd be at a much better spot. If we feel like there's something we're being called to to honor God, then hey, it's probably your duty to fulfill it. Why? Because you're not your own, and God is, through the Holy Spirit, probably calling you towards something, even if it's something that others don't feel called to. There's an element here under the surface that we should acknowledge together as well. The, the Bible talks about, especially over the New Testament, the idea of searing your conscience, right? Of, of muting it out all over the New Testament. So the idea is if you reject personal uh, conviction that comes your way, and generally as a believer, when we're talking about personal conviction, like that should be things that the Holy Spirit is actually laying on your heart or pressing you to do or give up or walk in. If, if you keep ignoring that over and over and over again, and if you keep ignoring commands of God throughout the Bible for too long, it'll begin to warp and shut down your conscience or your sense of right and wrong. If you go back to Romans Romans 1, in the beginning of 2, Paul talked about this heavily. Paul seems to be saying in this over matters of opinions, do not let your opinions warp the conscience of you and your brothers around. So if your brother feels like worshiping in a certain way is what God has called to him to, and the Bible's silent about it, if you feel strongly about abstaining something and the Bible doesn't say anything about it, if that process is about honoring God and giving thanks to God, then let it be. He's telling us like, at least your brother's trying to listen to their conscience. Why would you mess with that? If they're not hurting you or hurting anything else, like why are you trying to work out these issues on your brother or sister? Let it be. Don't actually, don't accidentally push someone towards searing their conscience. In, in Corinthians, they talk about the meat as if you have a person who feels like, hey man, I can't eat meat in my history and where I came from and idol worship and paganism. Like it just sends me to a bad place and the, and the stronger brother's like, do it, you're fine. Freedom, grace, come on. It's, it's about maturity. Like you need to eat this meat. He's saying, hey, you can actually sear their conscience. Let God work that stuff out. 
be careful about pushing people because you're not the Holy Spirit and you don't know what the Holy Spirit is calling someone to. I hope I haven't lost you all. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul wraps back to verse three on judgment and despising brothers here at the end, asking the question that, drill, that drills into kind of the recesses and corners of our heart. We probably lean towards one side or the other of this spectrum here in the text. One of us may uh, be approaching legalism and the other judgment. We might be those who are despising others who aren't mature like us, right? Quite easily, like, man, why don't they grow up? Why don't like, they figure it out? Like you, you may be leaning towards that. And you may begin to judge people over things that don't matter. And Paul just says, hey man, well, why is that happening? Why are you judging your brother? Why are you despising your brother? Again, in light of all the spheres of love, why have you left the call to love to enter the call to despise and to judge? You've traded the love of God and the family of God for despising and hating the person who's supposed to be a blessing to you. This point again, every knee will stand before God one day or every knee will bow before him one day. Every tongue will confess the Lord one day, one way or the other. Some will do it through the lens of adoption and worship and Christ alone has saved me and the full weight of my hope is in Jesus so their knee will bow in glad worship. You are a good God who's done much for me and other knees will be brought low because the rebellion will lead them to wrath and they will not stand. This point is twofold. God is going to judge so you and I don't need to. Not over matters of opinion. And with that, God is the only one worthy of judging. Paul talked to us early in Romans. There's a good judge who won't take a bribe and he cannot be coerced, who stands over it all and he will judge as the one worthy to judge. We're not worthy. So in honor of the God who is above and over all things, we need to be careful not to put ourselves in his spot especially over matters of opinion, over preference, over personal inclinations that aren't mentioned in the Bible. In short, repent and step down from judging your brother and sister. Why are you hurting the one who's in your family? The one that God has reconciled you to and given to you to defend you, walk with you, live with you. Stop judging them, begin to love them. And second, remember you too will be judged personally. You too will give an account for your life to God. We get a little over carried away, I think, with the doctrine of grace sometimes to where maybe we're not, li- we're not walking into a license to sin, but we still don't believe that the God will stand over and ask us about our life. He said, hey man, the good God will judge all things. Be careful. Not to worry more about your brother that you're meant to love than you do at looking at your own life. Because that, that's how we do things, right? You, you know some stuff's messed up in your own heart. You got some weird affections and some weird motives. Just probably deal with that. Or I could judge them. That actually sounds more appealing. So, hey, be careful. 
Christ covers all things, but God still stands over all things as well. Don't spend more time judging the people that you're called to love than you do paying attention to your own heart and your own mind. We're not going away from a grace theology. But God still sees all things. As we wind down, I want to connect to the bigger picture for us by asking, okay, why does this matter? We've tried hard to do a couple things. We want to keep the book of Romans ahead of you because it, it weaves a narrative that, that, that is really important and the build and the way it goes is helpful to us. So we've kept the book in front of us, but we also want to keep in, in, in light of each specific uh, focus, I'm a cynic at heart. So I'm always asking and we want to ask, okay, why does this matter? And the short answer is like, well, because God said, well, okay, yeah, yeah. But Why? Why does the text call us to not fight with our brothers and sisters over our opinions? Is the God of the universe giving us some empty, trite nicety? Is he yelling like the parent in the car, like, stop pulling your sister's hair, just like yelling something? Is he trying to make us more polished and politically correct? What is he doing to get to the why? Again, we back up to see more. Salvation is more then one day, you getting a pass to go to an obscure place in the sky. That is a extremely unfulfilling and not biblical version of, of what redemption of all things look like. Salvation is the repairing and the renewing of our relationship with the Godhead by first paying for our sins so we can be in an intimate relationship with the God of the universe now. This is the aha part of the gospel. It's not just that God will accept you and not crush you later. It's that he actually walks you into relational connection now, into his kingdom now, to his table now, in a loving relationship in this moment. So we see God as our Abba, as our father, as our daddy who accepts us and loves us fully, even when we're on a bad day. Even when we have rough edges, we see him as the good father who wants the best for us, has a plan for us, will never let us go. And even when we fall flat on our face, he welcomes us in and says, draw closer to me. Come look at me, draw closer to me. But with that, we don't just live in right relationship with God. That, it, that again would be a, a, a short-sighted view of the fullness and beauty of salvation. We also lived in right, or we also live in right relationship with each other, with other believers. He renews and fixes the way that we relate to him. And then he fixes the family, the way that we relate to each other. So in the middle of a broken world that's chaotic and breaking, you look around all the time going, what in the world? When you have to walk through that, you're invited to be in a close relationship with God. And then you're given the blessing of relationship with each other to walk through it. Do you get that? We get a good father and a good family. Do we get to walk in intimacy with the father, knowing that we are loved and he's never going to crush us? And in community, we get to walk as a family so we're not alone. And what do we do with that community? We worship together. We help each other. We protect one another. We experience the full gamut of life. Joy and pain and sorrow and celebration. We laugh together and we cry together. We get to experience the full gamut of this creation with each other. If we're not careful, we'll begin to alienate and fight and separate from the very people that Christ spilled his blood so that we might have family to walk through this thing with. We can not forget this. 
He shed his blood to make us united. This idea that it's just me and Jesus and just us and walk alone, you don't understand what your Bible says. The Bible talks about a community, a family. It's you and God and your family, and we have to remember that. We are the ones that get to live in the kingdom of God now, in relationship with God now. But to live in relationship with each other instead of destroy each other, we're going to have to be pretty humble with our opinions. We will destroy and divide the beauty of the family now if we fight the very people that we're meant to walk with and push them away over things that God isn't even looking at. The hope is that we'll not judge others but spur each other to righteousness. The hope is that we'll not despise one another but instead enjoy one another. Knowing that your brothers and sisters are a blessing from God. Here's the thing in my own heart. And I think maybe if you're honest, you'd notice it in yours too. What's a warning light on the dash that something's wrong? When you begin to be frustrated with everyone in the church family. You say, hey man, I, I gave them to you as a blessing to walk through this world with. Leaking back to the text last week, if God's people are meant to be known by their love, their sacrificial, kind, welcoming, deep love. If we're meant to be known by this, how in the world will we be known by it if we're too busy fighting each other over our opinions, over trivial matters, over lesser things? Fighting over your opinion will destroy community. It'll destroy peace. And here's the thing that we have to understand. It'll also destroy the mission. Who looks at the church and goes, oh my gosh, I want to be a part of that? When they see the people of God throwing haymakers at each other over things that are irrelevant. The reality is when the world sees that, they go, they're just as jacked up as my own family. I got enough dealing with them. Why would I want a part of that? There are things to contend over, church. And this is what we have to understand. There are things to push over. We have to grow in humility and wisdom to understand what those are and what they're not. We have to make sure that the mountains that we're dying upon are not the mountains of our preference. We are united to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and we are given each other to walk through this world with and experience God's presence alongside. Your brothers and sisters around you, when you're falling down and when you're messing up, they're the ones who point you to Jesus. They're the ones who help your heart see the beauty of what's been done for you. That'll be gone if we're too busy fighting for each other. This is all Paul wants us to know. It's not just love your brother, the neighbor, the other person outside as yourself. We've got to be humble enough to actually love each other like ourselves as well. Humbly laying down our opinions for the community of God and the mission of God. Man, you guys can come back up. This is the hope today. I think that there's probably some questions that you can walk out in your own mind through worship. Low-hanging fruit questions. Are there things that or my opinion that I've just crushed the people of God around me over? Questions like, do I think I even need the people of God around me? Questions like, am I, am I running into legalism where I feel like God's always mad at me and I just need to accept again the beauty that Jesus has done it? Oh, those are the low-hanging fruit questions 
Man, I just urge you to ask as we end in song today. We're going to take communion. What we kind of do is we'll have four songs. If you want to grab a cup there at the entryway, if you didn't grab one at any point during, what we want to do is give you time to respond to the word, pray what needs to be prayed, think about what needs to be thought about before you come and you take. So at any point during worship, you are free to take. You don't have to be a member here. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. But 1 Corinthians says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until we come, until he comes. So when you take today what you're remembering is again the gospel. Christ's blood has been spilled. His body has been broken. You do not have to break your own. You do not have to desperately try and win the affection of the Father. You put your faith in Jesus and you can humbly come and take. Whether you've had a great week, man, I opened that Bible, I sang some praise songs, like I prayed four times. Like if you had a rock star week, you can take. God, you did a good work in me. If you fell on your face all week long, you can come humbly to the table and say, man, there's still the broken body of blood and blood given for me. This is the hope, is that you would be encouraged by this. God is still there, and he cares, and he loves you. I pray that you would feel that as you take. Would you stand with me, and we'll pray together, and then enter into some worship.